<laughs> Hello and welcome back to Immigration Light. This is attorney James Betzold. I'm an immigration attorney and CEO of Prima Fasci. And I'm joined today uh, again by immigration attorney Joshua Meekrut. Joshua Meekrut is an immigration attorney here in Grand Rapids, Michigan and focuses on removal defense, practice before EOIR, uh, and family and uh, victims petitions. Uh, welcome back, Josh. Thank you. Happy to be here. I love being here. These, these are always great conversations. Oh, best part of my day so far. <laughs> and it's only 729 <laughs> in the morning. Um, today, our topic is we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the biblical references to immigration, to immigrants, how we should feel about them, how we should treat them. Uh, last time we talked about some of the Old Testament references, touched on a few verses, probably my favorite being uh, the reminder in Deuteronomy for the Lord's people to be kind to the immigrant and to the resident alien and to remember that they were aliens in living in Egypt, strangers in the land of Egypt for 400 years. Um, So today I wanted to talk a little bit more about the New Testament and some of the New Testament stories and verses having to do with immigration. And I don't think there's any way to do it without talking a little bit about asylum. And we'll get into Mm. the reason why in a second, but let's just do... I'm going to get, I think I'll just give like a two minute summary of asylum. So, uh, to become, to become someone who comes to the U S, uh, based on asylum or based on refugee status, you essentially need to prove that you are subject to persecution in your home country. You fear death or persecution. And it's because of your race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or because you belong to a particular social group. You have to prove that the government is unable or unwilling to protect you from that persecution. Uh, You have to prove that you cannot internally relocate within your country reasonably. And you also have to prove that it would be unreasonable for you to change who you are or what you're doing or any of those core beliefs or things about yourself in order to stop the persecution. For example, you shouldn't be forced to change your political opinion. You shouldn't be forced to change your family status, things like that. So with that in mind, we've seen a a number of these cases, uh, especially in the last couple of years. I don't know about you, Josh, but for me, I used to never take an asylum case because they, first of all, they were so rare. Um, That was probably four years ago. Um, But then all of a sudden we started getting all these kids coming in from Central and South America. And I mean, it was just something we couldn't ignore. How, how, How was that for you? Yeah, I think I was still with my the previous employer at the time uh, that that started happening, and uh, we saw a lot of it in, and yeah, we had a lot of minor children uh, that that we needed to pursue uh, asylum on their behalf, and and there's I, you know I, we we don't need to get too far into it, but of course I'm sure you're familiar with special immigrant juvenile status. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of those clients. Uh, I mean, that's like a, a sort of a, a kind of a form of asylum. It's a more generous form where you we protect children who've been uh, mistreated or uh, abused or abandoned by one or both of their parents in, in their home country. Um, but no, I, I think especially in, since I've been out on my own in the last three years, I we have seen just an absolute explosion in the number of people that are recent arrivals uh, that were detained at the border that many in, in many cases they presented themselves at the border. I, I, there's this idea out there that um, people who are coming here are all coming illegally and on a certain level, uh, there are people that come here without having a visa ahead of time, but they will go directly to a point of crossing uh, at an inspection point at the U.S.-Mexico border, and they will say, I am afraid to return to my country 
because I've X, Y, Z has happened to me. Um, please, can I stay in the United States? And then by U.S. law, by international law, we have to afford those people uh, the opportunity to go through the asylum process. Or, and there's various stages. We can maybe talk about that if, if time permits. But uh, I've seen a lot of people lately, like in the last two years in particular, tons. I've, I have a huge asylum practice now for those people that come to the border and that say, we're afraid. We can't go back. Um, and it's either Guatemala or Mexico most times. Sometimes it's El Salvador or Honduras. And, uh, and, and it's just, it's overwhelming. Like you, you can't make up these stories. I mean, that, that they tell us I mean, it, it blows your mind stuff. That's not even fit to repeat. Um, I mean, because it's so graphic sometimes it's, and, and I, I often tell people when I get into arguments with my, <laughs> my relatives about immigration, I'm like, if, if you were living in the circumstances that they were living in, in their home country, you would probably want to come to the United States too. And, and yeah, I mean, asylum, I, I don't know if you said this already, you have to apply for it within a year of arrival. Mm-hmm. And I think before the last couple of years, <clears throat> most people had missed that deadline that had come either to, you know, work with us at, the, at my former job or had come to meet with me once I hung out my own shingle. People had missed that one year deadline. People had been here for a while and they say, oh, you know, something happened to my family members and I don't want to go back now because of that. And that's, you know, that's not as, as compelling, obviously, as someone who is, you know, attacked or persecuted. And then they make the trip immediately, like within days or minutes after the, the thing happens. Often their children are in danger. And, uh, and so I've had a lot of people where we haven't had any trouble meeting the one-year deadline, uh, whereas that was never the case for like the first four years of my career. Um, and that's been an so that I guess is the principal observation I would make. I'm sorry, I've kind of gone on yeah, on no length problem. about it, but uh, yeah. So I mean, asylum. Talking about asylum is a really relevant thing uh, here in the 21st century, uh, especially in the last couple of years. And we talked a little bit last time about you know some of the crisis over in Syria, but there's an equally well, I don't know if it's equal, but it's just as bad for some people because it results in death. Um, crisis in. Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, and some areas of Mexico as well. So with that yeah, in you mind... Know, um, one of the things a lot of people don't know just by way of interest, um, it, the m- most violent city, I think, in the Western Hemisphere right now, and I think the second most violent city in the world is Acapulco, which used to be you know, known as this mecca for tourists and, and a resort town, and now it's just absolutely overrun by, by gangs and drug dealers and um and they're they're attacking families and they're doing all sorts of gruesome things to any of the police that aren't corrupt and i had i I had a rash of like maybe six of cases no it was maybe four maybe five cases from acapulco um that all happened in a row that all came within six months of each other and and people just aren't aware how bad it is yeah we think about syria but like acapulco is the second most violent city in the world or at least (laughs) It was as of a year ago, um, and that's in Mexico. That's where we, you know, some of us have gone in the past for vacations. Yeah, so definitely a relevant topic for today. Um, but it was also relevant uh, back in the time of the New Testament, uh, back in the time of Jesus of Nazareth. So I, I think many people, most people, are probably familiar with uh, the story of Jesus's birth, right? It's documented fairly well in, in the Gospels in the New Testament. Um, one thing that tends to be forgotten is uh, one of the aspects of the story is about the three wise men. So it's Bible quiz time, Josh. 
I'm going to ask you a couple Ooh. questions about uh, about this story, and let's see if you can get it right the first time. If if you don't, you, right. have, you have to go repent severely and beg forgiveness, okay? I, mean, I, I was raised Catholic. <laughs> I'm very familiar with that. All right. So first question, uh, where were the three wise men from? I think they were from somewhere in modern-day Iran or Persia. Am I do I get a do I get a bell on that? Yeah, one? ding ding ding. Yeah, they were from the east, so you win. Uh, and when they when they came to Palestine, when they came to Israel, where why why did they come? Um, <clears throat> they saw a star in the sky um, that indicated to them that uh, that the that an anointed one or a, a like some holy figure was uh, set to be born or arrive. I think in. Uh, modern day Israel, Palestine. Ding, 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 ding. You get it right. Okay, next question. <laughs> when they entered uh, Palestine or the land of Israel, um, who did they present themselves to? Um, I think they first went to the king, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, exactly, right? They presented themselves to King Herod, and they essentially told him, hey, we're here. We saw the sign. Uh, we're looking for the Messiah. He's going to be born, or the new king. Um, do you know where he is? And of course, Herod said, you know, sort of, uh, and, and, and he, he had guile in his heart, of course, the scriptures tell us. So he said, oh, no, I don't. But you guys are free to go around and look for him. And when you find him, come back and come tell, and tell me. me. and I'll come worship him. Yes, yeah. so I can worship him, right? But of course, we know he had no plans on worshiping him. Herod was the, at the time, he was the, well, let's see, he was the, you could call him the king of Israel, I guess, but really he served under the Roman banner, right? Yeah. Um, so he was sort of the subservient king of Israel. I think he was actually appointed uh, by Rome. Yeah. Um, and, in any I mean, event, yeah, he ruled. At yeah, the and, grace he, of, of, and he liked it. And he liked it, and he didn't want to be uh, subjugated by some other new king. So his plan, and he was aware of a prophecy as well about this, and so his plan was to find this kid and kill him, right? So would be no threat to his power um so right. after the wise men it actually they tell us the scriptures tell us the wise men left the country by another way they didn't go back and, and tell herod because i think probably they knew what was in his heart yeah um and figured it was best not to go back to him but so they left the country by another way and not long after this herod gets very angry and orders uh just a a, a terrible what would, what's it called when you kill babies? It's infanticide. Oh, infanticide? Yeah. yeah. Right? He orders the death of, I think it was, a, was it all like, all men who are two years and under or something like that? All the, all the uh, yeah. baby boys in Israel ordered killed. Or just was it a, Bethlehem? But yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it was just the city of Bethlehem or if it was all of Israel, but it was terrible enough um, that that uh, Joseph was warned in a dream that he needed to take his family and flee to um, Egypt, Egypt, land of the pyramids. Egypt again enters the biblical story, right? They just don't seem to go away. So, so they flee to Egypt and they actually live there for a number of years. Uh, you know, Jesus's young infancy or young childhood anyway, happens outside of Bethlehem, outside of Nazareth, outside of Israel. Uh, in a foreign yeah. land. Now let's yeah. let's just take a moment and let's analyze uh, Jesus and his family's asylum case. First of all, we have no record that they appeared before. <laughs> I wondered where you were going. 
there's, there's, there's no evidence in the scriptural account anyway that they presented themselves yeah. to the Egyptian officials and said, hey, you know, King Herod over there, part of the Roman Empire, wants to kill our baby. Can you please protect us? Right. So we don't right. we don't know if they if they appeared before any Egyptian sovereign at the time, but there doesn't seem to be much record of it. Egypt was it did not appear to be much of a political power at the time. Um, I think the the Roman Empire was really dominating the world, um, but they escaped yeah, and they had too. to. So let's imagine that Jesus is Jesus and he's not from Nazareth. He's from Huehuetenango, Guatemala. Um, and yeah. you've got you've got threats of death, right? And in I guess in Jesus in Jesus's case, there was uh, from literally from the government. It was a government official. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, killing infanticide. Um, and let's see, what about uh, could he do? Okay, so he's uh, being threatened with death. Okay, so that's persecution. Is it one of the five right. grounds? Race? No. Well, yeah, we should introduce the five five grounds. In, in, in asylum law, you have to prove if just the fact that someone has suffered some kind of uh, persecution or, or attack or threats yeah, isn't necessarily, necessarily sufficient by itself. You have to also prove that the motive behind the attack was on account of what we call protected grounds. The protected grounds, one is uh, your religion, one is um, your your race, one is your political opinion. I think the other one is nationality, and then the other one is the catch-all, the the particular social group. Not um, very much the, of a catch-all, in my opinion. It doesn't catch a whole lot, but it really doesn't. That's true. So but race it's out there was, anyway. it, was, so like, was Jesus being persecuted because of his race? No. Um, it, no. Yeah, probably not. Not just because of his race. Uh, was it because of his religion? Um, if I was his lawyer, I would maybe try <laughs> to make that argument. You would definitely throw it in there. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think ultimately they may deny based on religion because Herod wasn't just persecuting, uh, Jews or Hebrews in this area. He was killing all the babies, all the baby boys in this particular area, independent of their religion, maybe. Um, so maybe on that. Right. So race, religion, political opinion, babies don't have political opinions. His parents probably didn't right. have much of a political right. opinion. They were all subservient to Roman law. Uh, well, if we're getting really technical about this, probably um, the Jesus's claim to asylum would be based on I mean, his parents would articulate um, at that point the the grounds for it, which is you know what you and I, you or I would do if we had parents who said that they were going to do something to their child. Which of course we know, I'm sure you know, it happens all the time. People mm, come and they say that yes. these people came to me and they said they were going to kill my child if I didn't do X, Y, or Z, and so they flee to America. Yep. Um, and so they could, uh, J Joseph and Mary could have made the argument just as effectively as, you know, as though they were standing in the shoes of, of the baby. Obviously, that would be persecution that they could claim to have suffered as well, mm -hmm. um, that, that their child was being threatened. Um, but now put yourself then, in the shoes of ICE counsel, yeah. right? So literally here, the devil's <laughs> advocate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I should call, should call that more often. Yeah. So, I mean... It's, it wasn't specifically because of his race. It wasn't specifically because of his uh, political opinion or religion, uh, national origin, nationality. Maybe. Maybe, but not specifically yeah. because it wasn't all Hebrews who were being killed. It was just the two-year-olds, right, or the babies. Right. And, and Herod himself was a Hebrew as well, so it wasn't right. like he had some, some kind of animus against Hebrews. Or at so least we get to, the famous, to the famous particular social group. 
How would you define a, the social group in this situation? <laughs> a social group of one future potential messiah. <laughs> future future messiah. Yes. Uh, I don't think that would be a recognized particular social group because it would be too narrow. <laughs> I think that's what they would say. So this is so funny that we're doing this. Like, well, but let's, I mean, it's, it's a legal analysis, be, right? Because, like you said, and I've I've had these cases where they come in and the kid says, uh, "Yeah, I, well, my parents are dead, and I was living with my grandpa, and they told my grandpa it was time for me to join the gang, or he had to pay rent, and we didn't have money for rent, so we sold the TV, and I trekked up to the United States because they were going to kill me, right?" Yeah, yeah. I and mean, those and, are hard cases um, because, and they're often, not the easiest cases because, again, you're dealing with. Well, was it because of your race? No, they, these gangs are threatening all races here. Well, was it because of your nationality? Well, they're threatening everyone in my country like this. Well, is it because of your political opinion? Well, I'm not very political active, and I don't, really don't care about politics. Well, is it about uh, your uh, what one did I skip? Nationality, political opinion. Yeah, nationality. Social, yeah. Well, anyway, so not religion because, well, I'm not very religious, or yeah, I'm Catholic, but. They, they persecute people independent of their religion too. So then we get down to the particular right. social group. So thinking about thinking about uh, the savior, which which would have been his particular social group, I guess just shooting from the hip, maybe maybe you're, you're just you know children under two years old in uh, from Nazareth or from or from, from Israel. That were born in Bethlehem. Yeah, during this time period, because those are the ones that, yeah, Herod's going and killing all of them. And so we belong to that particular social group. And then, of course, Devil's Advocate is going to say, well, you know, there's no established case law on it. This is this would be a case of first impression. <laughs> you shouldn't be defining it so narrowly. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think about that analysis? Yeah, I think it sounds about like what we do. I mean, that's what we do in, in our jobs is, is we try to flesh these things out and we try to see if the if the law covers uh, these particular cases and often we're just in the position where we have to present the best case we can for these for these individuals because obviously they um the system usually allows them the opportunity to get in front of an immigration judge and ask for this relief of asylum um and once they get there uh, they shouldn't have to navigate that space alone and and it's our job to just put the best available case in front of the judge and I, I would imagine you agree with that. And yeah. um, it's uh, often, you know, we, we as lawyers can't make any arguments that are that are spurious or that are that are not backed up by at least good faith arguments from the law. Um, but you know but what? I found, there are those I those found a number are, of times. I found a number of times even the best argument available is judge. I know there's case law against exactly what I'm saying, but the case law either one isn't 100% on point because this case is different and our facts are different and we have more evidence. Or two, the case law is wrong and we need to change it. And you need to help me do that one way or another, whether you approve my case and ICE appeals or whether you deny my case and we appeal. Um, And I mean, sometimes you just, I mean, you get the urge to sit there and I just want to scream, they're going to kill this baby, you know? (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, it's a... it, it, it's it's really hard almost in a way to talk about it in the abstract because it it, de, it, it it's almost like the theoretical just isn't good enough for right. what we deal with in these cases like um, and you know there are people that 
that come up and they, they, they have like, uh, you know, they have a basis for some fear, but it's not, I mean, most of the time it's, it's incredible what these people go through and, and to, and it's, it's really difficult to reduce it to the abstract. We, we have to do that. I mean, that's our job. That's, I mean, the law winnows things. It, it, it's, it sets up a filter for, you know, um, what's going to cross the threshold and what's not quite literally. And, and it's, it's really hard to draw that line sometimes because I think especially with everything that's happening in Syria now and that whole discussion, I mean, that was a very relevant political issue in the last presidential election of, you know, that, that came up, I think, in at least two of the three debates between Miss um, Clinton and, and Mr. Trump. They argued about Syrian refugees and how many we should let in. And yeah. in Germany today, it's a huge political issue um, about how many to let in. And, and, and this actually begs an interesting point. Like you and I are discussing this um, issue of asylum and how it works in the context of immigration court when we're doing what we call defensive asylum, meaning somebody comes to the United States and they're placed in removal proceedings because they present themselves at the border or they're caught at the border. And then in the context of removal proceedings, they request the defense of asylum. They mean, meaning like, I know you're trying to process me for removal or deportation from the United States, but I'm going to use the claim of asylum as a shield. And, you know, of course we can't make those claims unless we have the facts for them. But um, you, we, you and I, I, I think, I, I don't want to speak for you, but most of my cases are defensive in nature because I'm usually in court. But yeah. when you do an affirmative case, an affirmative asylum case, depending on where you're from in the world right now, um, they're handed out like as a matter of course, just based on the country conditions, because the country conditions are so bad that you don't even need to have suffered. Like you could just hear that there's some nasty stuff coming your way and you're from, you know, um, you know, whatever place in Syria and you hear, Oh wait, they're coming. The tanks are coming. Let's head out. You know, um, they're, they're going to be here in a week. And so, you know, maybe you're a, you're a software engineer, or at least you are some kind of low level businessman. And you, so you get your family, you put them on a plane. Um, or maybe you even like cross a border into Jordan and then you're in a refugee camp for two weeks and then you make it to the, to the airport and you get on the airport and you come to the United States, you land on a tourist visa or some kind of visa. And, um, I've had these I've had these cases come in too, and then you apply for asylum and it's handed out almost as a matter of course. You don't have to demonstrate, um, you know, that this person even suffered any persecution. It was just all prospective. It was all, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming down the road, so to speak. And you couldn't demonstrate that they were any more in the in the way uh, in the harm's way than than anybody else in the in the city would have been. So it's not like you can even demonstrate a protected ground. But these cases are still granted as a matter of course. And that was what was being discussed is like how many of these people, excuse me, that's what was being debated um, between the two candidates is how many of these carte blanche cases are we just going to rubber stamp and give asylum? And, and the same has been true from Iraq in a lot of ways because just, of, you know, the relationship we obviously have to what's going on there. Um, we've, we've handed out a lot of asylum to people from Iraq, people from other hot zones like Laos or, or Burma in, in, in past years or the Sudan. Uh, but when it comes to Mexico or Guatemala, uh, despite how bad it is in those countries, and I think you and I have maybe talked about this before, um, those in those countries, we have to prove strictly according to law, these, um, the, the social group, the on account of that, that, that this person has particularly suffered persecution, not just that they were in a place where it was generally dangerous. And obviously there's different legal standards that apply in these kinds of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if your grant refugee law is very much overlaps with asylum law, but it's not quite exactly the same thing. The U.S. government, the State Department, has the authority to designate entire groups of people from entire regions as refugees, and those are sort of political decisions that get made, which is why it was a, a debate topic. Um, but uh, when you deal with it, it, it's such a higher burden. Like you look at what people suffer that do come from Acapulco or someplace in in uh, Central America, and you go, this just doesn't. You can't quite fit it into one of the boxes, but yeah. but it's, it's still worse terrible than what someone may have suffered from Syria. Yeah, it's still yeah. terrible. It's still un- unimaginably terrible. It's still a and threat it's worse to your maybe life, than some, what's your personal safety. Syria. And I tell you what, what really gets me the worst is, um, you know, when you see these these cases of, you know, the the young women who are crossing the border and come to the U.S. and a lot of the stories that they have to tell about, you know, how they were raped by a gang, how this happened, how that happened, and I've been in court, and I've, uh, you know, and I've been there, and ICE chief counsel has, you know, made the argument and unfortunately been successful in it with this line saying, you know what, I'm, I know that you suffered terrible things, but that's not a reason to get asylum. I know you were raped. Right. Yeah. I know you've been violated. I know that it was violent and it was terrible and it was traumatic and you're suffering still today PTSD from the whole affair but that's not a reason we're going to give you asylum right because they're they're yeah. hinging their argument on this whole particular social group well this group you're claiming is too broad and uh, so just saying you know women from one country they'll say that's too broad okay well women who have <laughs> who have been raped in this country by a gang no, 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 because you're describing in the name of the particular social group, you're describing the suffering that occurred. It has to be separate and apart from that. And to me, right. yeah. if the whole point of asylum is to give people refuge and protection from, I, I would say it should be more than just persecution. It should be uh, their life, you know, their life is in danger. So maybe it's not persecution of a group in the traditional sense, but we need to really take a broader view of what those groups are. My opinion. That's how I think the last yeah. day. Because I think there's too yeah, many. I, I, I mean, it's too much. Too much bad going on. Yeah. And we can do it. We can do it. Yeah. America can absorb millions of people. Make no doubt about it. When there, when when Trump and Clinton were debating, oh well, how many refugees should we let in? I'm sitting there thinking, why are we putting any limit on this? If they want to come here and be part of America, they're going to absorb into society. They're going to assimilate culturally. They're going to be uh, taxpayers, right? They're going yeah. to be successful. Immigrants have a huge rate of being successful in the United States, of working hard, of working their way up, um, and really yeah. contributing to society. So why are – I mean the American birth rate's not that high anymore. It's not like it yeah. was. If you want an economy to grow, you need people. And if you can't get them yeah. – uh, from just the birth rate anymore, and you've got people who are suffering and would give their would literally give their life for the chance to be here. Hey, welcome, guys. Yeah, come on in. Yeah, we don't want you to be a terrorist, yeah. of course. And there's vetting and stuff for that, but by and large, it it just seems yeah. arbitrary to set a number. It seems arbitrary. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, I in one of my undergrad classes. Uh, one of my favorite classes. It was legal philosophy, and it was a, it was a plot, like philosophy three thirty or something. I don't. I think it was what it was at Grand Valley. 
And um, it was taught by two lawyers, um, one of whom I'm still in touch with today. He's, he was actually ended up being one of my law school professors. And he's, um, I mean, these guys weren't professors. They were just practicing lawyers that um, the philosophy department found to teach this class. And um, we got into a lot of discussions about a lot of things in that class. It was one of the best classes I had in undergrad. And I always liked to be the guy that would like poke holes in every other argument that anybody else would make. So anyone would, you know, someone would make a, a uh, an affirmative proposition. And I would say, well, have you thought about this or this or this? And I'd try to sort of take the legs out of it, you know, because I always thought that made me clever. It just made me an a-hole really more than anything else. <laughs> but like, I, that was always what I tried to do. And I tried to do that to this professor at one point, one of the two professors. And this, this guy was brilliant. Like he had his law degree from uh, Notre Dame and he was like magna cum laude and he had um, gotten an LLM and he, he did nothing but like really high level appellate practice in the federal court system. And mm. And I made this argument to him, and he goes, you know what? If your only argument is that, that what I'm saying is a slippery slope, that's a pathetic argument. Like, it's a logical fallacy. Like, this is what people do. And, this is, and so this is my 10% my, my, my pushback um, and, and respect for the legislators and, and the line drawing that, I mean, you, we draw lines. Like, you, you, these things are arbitrary. Like, even if, you can, even if they can be labeled a slippery slope, like there's never usually an absolute on the left or an absolute on the right that, that has the proper orientation. It's always a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. And so like, um, you just, you do, you pick a point on the scale and you say, this is where we're going to stop. And, and we, and so we do have to pick numbers. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think you would disagree with that. Um, most likely like, but I think you, your point is well taken. And I, I, I would agree that we have to be probably, I would be in, in favor of a more robust, more generous, more liberal, legal immigration regime than we have because i do think you're right that america can absorb more and at various times in the past and you and i talked about this in, in the first uh, part of this this subject the u.s has turned the spigot on and off as one of my other old professors used to say like yes. the, the the immigrant spigot like in the from the, the 1870s or 1880s really until like 1920 um it was just wide open and you had Tons of Eastern European immigrants coming from Poland and Russia, which is where my ancestors came from, Poland. And uh, you had uh, tons and tons of Italian immigrants. And this is, you know, where you get the sort of back, the backstory for The Godfather. Um, such a great movie, I think, for one of those reasons. Because it, it's all about the American experience in particular through, lived through the eyes of an immigrant who ends up being successful, an Italian immigrant. And uh, you, you see this, and then in the 20s, it just shuts down. It completely shuts off, and um, the country really is, stays shut down, really, until like, I think like the 1960s again before it, it started to liberalize. And I, I really have, have not studied exactly what the policy motivations were for turning I'm not I mean you know what they are when the, you and I talked about this yesterday we always know what the political motivation is when we want to turn the spigot of immigration off it's because of people saying whoa, 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 whoa there's too many immigrants you know this is competing with jobs this is they're not assimilating it's you know it's either maybe on some level there's racism or xenophobia um, but when the spigot gets open what is it that does it I mean the the easy answer is that it's that it's got to do with economics and um the sort of corporate titans saying we need more labor um, but i'd really love to get into that subject more like when in, in periods of of openness and liberal immigration to the united states like lots of people coming in um when my ancestors came in um at least on half my half the side of my family what was the motivation like what was the policy behind it 
Well, I know that I, I, I know that in my family it was, uh, you know, population and starvation, and in, in Europe. And so, yeah, right. Well, yeah. We well, I mean, those here. are the motivations. There was land here. Right? There was farms here. There was yeah, a yeah. favorable climate. And I, well, I, I guess what I mean is, like, what was the political motivation on the part of the immigration authorities in the United States at the time to allow that to happen? You know, because as you say, like with the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, with the Alien and Sedition Acts, with the with the the laws that were passed to, to sort of govern Irish immigrants, um, you know all the poll taxes and all the, all the sort of uh, things that, that happened in the 1840s and 50s before the Civil War. There's tons of times when, when they were, there were restrictive laws passed. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the other times, like when, when we opened up, what was the motivation? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the motivation, just to go off on this on the tangent here, was all of a sudden we had lots of land that was part of the United States and we needed to, to stake claim to it, and we needed people to do that for us. So we had the Homesteading Acts. Uh, where it opened up millions of acres, uh, and as long as you weren't an enemy of the United States and never took arms against us, you could you could apply for, get right. it, you build your homestead, and you know you've got some land and and uh, a leg up, being able to prosper. But let's go back to yeah to some of the uh, you know are there any other really key well well let's think about this let's go back to to Jesus's asylum case in Egypt if they had placed <laughs> you know if they had a placed border patrol there. And Border Patrol had stopped them. And let's just put all of the current U.S. law in place at that border with Egypt, right? Um, right. You know, what, I mean, he let's say it's today. They probably would not have gotten asylum. They may not yeah. have, right? Because they could have said, well, that's, right. that's really strict. It was a one-time thing. General civil strife even is not enough. General country criminal conditions, general conditions is not enough. Now, they may have gotten protection under the Convention Against Torture. Or humanitarian asylum would have been a possibility as well. Um, but, but those are different much... from, from regular asylum because at least under right. protection under the Convention Against Torture, um, they won't send you back yet, you know, until the danger passes. Uh, and right. you get a work right. permit, right? But it's still a, it's temporary. Uh, ultimately, it's a temporary thing at any time. You know, as soon as Herod stops killing babies, they could, uh, you know, Egyptian ice could come and say, okay, he stopped killing babies. You're not in danger anymore. Get out of our country. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, Such a fascinating exercise. Well, yeah. Right? I mean, I mean really because, because he probably would know that he probably would not have gotten asylum. Yeah. Um, uh, the family would. And I think it's super important to just consider that because, you know, the, the original question that brought on, uh, this and then the previous episode of the podcast that we did was a question from a gentleman at church saying, how do you square yourself morally with representing people who have come into the country illegally or who are wanting to come you know, to the United States and they entered without permission? And it's this. Let's take a look at the uh, – let's take a look at the savior, the figurehead of Christianity for the whole world, and let's look yeah. at his situation. What happened with him? He was a stranger in a foreign land. I don't know if he was welcomed in, but they didn't kick him out. I mean, they only left Egypt after yeah. it was revealed to Joseph it was okay to go back. Uh, yeah, right. So, right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's that's it's a pretty good example, I think, thought. for us to look at. And there's, I mean, yeah, that's I not agree. the only. It's not even the only uh, instance of you know reference to immigrants or how we should treat uh, foreigners in the land in the New Testament as well. No, I, you know. In- Preparing for today, I, I mean, there's, I, I think the best one that I was able to find 
was in Matthew 25. Um, uh, let's see, it's Matthew 25, 35, which is one of the more famous uh, of Jesus's. I mean, there's so many amazing things he said, but for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Um, and this is a description of who's uh, got credibility, I suppose, or who, who's got uh, some treasure laid up in heaven. Um, people that, that will be considered righteous will do those things. Uh, welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, um, protecting those who are in danger. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted, right? I mean, it just, it, and obviously we went through yesterday the Old Testament. This just runs throughout. I mean, it's everywhere. In, yeah. in the in the Christian scriptures, it is. I mean, it's a common theme, and I mean, remember that uh, everyone remembers the the parable of the Good Samaritan. I hope, right? Oh yeah, right. That's another one. I mean, that's that's a perfect example of it's sort of uh, and mean, it's sort again, of in reverse, right? It's it's here in that situation. You had an Israelite or a Jew who was leaving Jerusalem and was going to another land. Was tra actually traveled through another land. And was set upon and beaten and uh, nigh unto death, right? Like really just on death's yeah. door. And uh, oh, I, for, I forget exactly who it was, but a number of other Israelites pass him and, you know, even for dead, they're not, they, they don't try and help. And then a Samaritan and the Samaritans were hated by the Jews at the time. They were yeah. this, like, yeah. they were the scourge. They were the scourge of the earth. Yeah. really. And so they wouldn't, they would, they would go there were many who would go out of their way to avoid having to pass through any uh, Samaritan land or territory because they thought it was unclean and unfit and dirty and the people were bad. And, um, and so of course, when Jesus is telling this yeah. parable, he's, he's encouraging people. He's, he's expounding on the, on the commandment to love thy neighbor. Right. And he's explaining, right. but he's also, I mean, the irony of it is like he uses a character who's thought of as the other, like, the alien, the dirty, or the outsider, um, and and that person is the protagonist of the story about loving your neighbor. Right. Yeah. So I think that's another example of, I mean, it, it touches on immigration because you're going through other people's land, you're going and dealing with estranged people, and like you said, um, you know, it, it it's about how you're supposed to treat your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Well, well, people down in Guatemala aren't my neighbor; they have their own neighbors. Well, come on, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea that um, that they aren't our neighbors is just not a sustainable notion. I mean, you you could maybe argue that the people that are your physical right here next door, uh, you know, that those people you have an obligation to that may you could argue. I think it's it's not a bad argument to say that that argument that 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 relationship is extremely important. The relationship you have to your direct neighbors and your family members, for that matter, but. Um, when, I mean, people, I mean, again, if there's anything that's come out of our discussion, it's obvious that people move from place to place. People from different cultures move from one culture, one space, one geographic place to another. And they have done this throughout history. It's a normal part of what has constituted human existence on this planet. Um, all of our families in the United States on some level, unless we're native Americans have done this, they've moved from one place to the other. And one of the other constant refrains in uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament is do not forget. 
you know, you were aliens and you needed help. And so don't forget that now. Um, extend hospitality to strangers. Um, all those things uh, just are, they, they should be in the, the DNA of what it means to be an American. I think so. And I think it's also important to remember that, like, the country we have today and the culture we have today is because people were escaping religious persecution, one of the grounds for asylum, fair enough, it's one of the current grounds for asylum, um, but they were experiencing religious persecution in their home countries and they yeah. really had nowhere else to go. Right? Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife actually can trace her genealogy all the way back to um, a guy who came over on the Mayflower named John Howland, who uh, in the, like the, I think it was William Bradford who wrote like the journals, uh, you know, the trip over on the Mayflower and all this. And John Howland almost fell overboard. <laughs> he did fall overboard and somebody <laughs> caught him, and, you know. And so like, you know, my wife, her dad has been trying to apply to get into the John Howland Society and all this stuff, but uh I mean, my, so my daughter's ancestors can be traced all the way back to the Mayflower, and they came over here because they were looking for religious freedom. And it's a I beautiful think, thing. And I think religious freedom is just as beautiful as freedom from being murdered by a gang. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a part of it, right? I mean, you, you don't have that. You can't um, have religious you, no freedom. freedom if you're now dead, right? Well, you can have your yeah. religious freedom in heaven, I suppose, but it's not the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's so true. And, uh, you know, it's useful to think of these things. Um, I found that in, verse that I comparison. quoted badly earlier, Josh, it was, it wasn't oh, okay. from the new Testament. It was from Leviticus when Moses receives God's law. And this is just a paraphrase. I guess it says with me, you are, but aliens and tenants. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah I see it. I've, I've actually got my list here. I I don't think we have the same list, but I and I think yeah, what, I, I what almost, that spoke to me I was you know uh, sort of along the same lines of look uh, in, in the New Testament when when Jesus was talking to I think it was some of the Pharisees or the Sadducees they were like oh well we're children of Abraham and he said God can make he can make children of Abraham out of the dust of the earth what are you you know and in Leviticus when when receiving God's law with me you are but aliens and tenants. So, yeah, you live in the United States of America. Your life is good. But in the grand scheme of things, you, you got to be careful. Yeah. Because you're, you're aliens, aliens yeah. and you're all tenants. We all are. So I think that's uh, yeah important to remember as well. But I agree with you. I think the principles that we discussed today are universal. I think, you know, live and let live. Yeah, I don't find somebody who, uh, find somebody who disagrees. You know, <laughs> with any of these things that we're talking about, the right. logic of them again. Well, a good discussion today. Uh, I really appreciate really appreciate your time, Josh, for for joining us and you know discussing this awesome topic with us. I think absolutely. Um, Gosh, I think what a great topic. I'm, I think in two episodes, maybe we answered part of the question that that nice gentleman asked me at church, and so um, I think it was uh, well worth our time, and, and I hope our listeners appreciate it as well. Um, again, if you. If you were listening to us, I was joined today by uh, immigration attorney Joshua Mikrit. He's an immigration attorney in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He does great work, uh, focuses a lot on removal defense, asylum, and family practice uh, dealing with immigration. So uh, thank you for joining us today, Josh. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me along for such a fantastic topic, James. All right. And we'll have you back again at another time. I hope so. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not optional. It's a non-optional social convention. <laughs> it's a subpoena. It's a subpoena. Right? subpoena. Yes, there we go. <laughs> File for one. All right. Thanks, Josh. Have a good day. Today's show has been brought to you by Prima Fasci. Prima Fasci is the immigration attorney's solution for auto-filling immigration forms and immigration case management. Now, Prima Fasci is a standalone application, but it's also built to work with Clio, which is the world's premier legal case management system. It's completely cloud-based, which means you can practice from anywhere. You can find a free trial of Prima Fasci at www.primafascinow.com. Simply scroll down, click the blue button to subscribe uh, to the free trial. There's no credit card required. Try it out, and if it works for you and you think it'll be a benefit to your practice, uh, subscribe. We know you're going to enjoy it because it is simply the easiest to use and most intuitive immigration software on the market today with features like a client portal so your clients can collaborate on their case so they can upload documents to their checklist which they can also view from the portal. Primafashi is quickly becoming the easiest to use and best immigration case management software out there. The views and opinions you've heard on the show today are in fact the views and opinions of the people who spoke them. If you enjoyed our show, please tell a friend, subscribe, leave us a positive review, share it on social media. And we're just going to do a quick shout out to all the nerds and coolios out there. We hope you're listening. Thanks.